Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Anise Gross, and I'll be reading an essay I wrote about visiting a time machine called the Forevertron in uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin. And it's from a collection of essays I'm working on about the future. Forevertron. We park our car in front of a hardware store in Baraboo, Wisconsin. And the woman behind the counter at the store says, Oh yeah, it's just out back. Forever? Heaven? Just out back? We walk behind the building and there are puddles and an endless field of different metals stacked into piles. Empty refrigerators, mangled shopping carts, steel beams, giant light bulb sockets, metal piping, huge washers, giant rusted cogs. Whatever scrap metal is in the vicinity of Dr. Evermore's reach, it is all here. But where is the Forever Tron, this much-talked-about thing in the middle of Baraboo? We round a thicket of trees, and on the other side, there it stands. Without a picture here, or in fact a hundred pictures, it's hard to convince you of what it is we see. To say it is the largest scrap metal sculpture in the world makes it seem like just a statistic. Perhaps the most important thing to say about the 320-ton, onion-domed, rusty-colored light spectacle is this, that it's taking someone to forever. And that someone is Dr. Evermore. We find him sitting in the passenger seat of a purple Mini Cooper, parked in the middle of the drizzly grounds. The rain is slight, and it seems like twinkling in the sky. When we come up to him to say hello, he sort of mumbles at us, and I think maybe he's just another visitor. He's wearing a straw Havana hat, suspenders, and he taps the ground with a cane. The passenger door is open, and he has one leg in the car, one hanging out. Instantly, Lady Evermore, his wife, appears, bowling out of her mint green Airstream parked nearby, with a Ziploc baggie of molasses cookies in her hand. She's wearing a long emerald green dress, and her hair is down in braids. She's telling us that Dr. Evermore is half-paralyzed from a stroke, When he speaks, the words are mumbled on the right side and firm on the left. He stares at us with his left eye intently, and his right eye sits lazy as if asleep, rolling around in its socket. One leg inside the car, one hanging out. Is this really the man, this paralyzed, half-slumped-over man, the genius and soul creator of the Forevertron? It's 1890. Eggington, England. Little Dr. Evermore, a young English boy, is out one evening with his father, a Presbyterian minister, and they are trapped in a giant electrical storm. Light dances across the sky in pink and purple veins, and little Dr. Evermore asks his father where such a thing of mystery could come from. His father replies that something so magnificent could only come from the hand of God. The words of his father ring in his ears, making a lasting impression on the little doctor. He looks up at the sky, 
lightning etching out pink and purple words, sending a message to him. The message in the sky tells the little doctor evermore, you must find a way to harness this energy in the lightning and use it to return to God. But how will I do that, he wonders. He knows what he has to do. He has to travel through time somewhere far into the future, perhaps all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. There, somewhere in the future, in Baraboo, Wisconsin, he'll find the body of a genius, a visionary, and they'll join together as one. So the little doctor evermore does just that. He looks up at a lightning bolt and travels all the way through space and time, from 127 years ago, across the Atlantic Ocean. He finds Tom Every, a lonely middle-aged man looking for a purpose, and through a single bolt of lightning, they join together in one body. At least, this is the story that the man sitting in the purple Mini Cooper is telling us. But who is Dr. Evermore, really? Is Dr. Evermore a Victorian-era inventor from Eggington, England, born 127 years ago? Or is he Tom Every, modern salvage artist, looking for the future? Or is he both joined together as one? Dr. Evermore is still mumbling fervently out of one side of his mouth. He is old. He had a stroke. To be correct, I should say, they are old. They had a stroke. Are Tom Every and Dr. Evermore really sharing this body? Has one of them already left, leaving an empty, paralyzed space? Perhaps one madman is inhabiting the paralyzed right side, and the other lives in the left side, the moving, speaking side. Perhaps they switch back and forth between the sides. I imagine two men living in the body before me, perched inside the Mini Cooper, and I quickly step away. I don't want anything the doctor says to poke holes in this discovery of forever that is before me. I leave Ragnar to talk with Dr. Evermore, and I watch as only half of his body moves. Who is tapping the cane? Who is speaking? Are they really working in unison? I look down into a puddle on the ground, and all I see are endless, murky reflections of myself, like little smeared portraits, unsure, quivering. I walk across the way to a gigantic field of birds that have been sculpted out of musical instruments, with limbs of gasoline spouts. The birds are at least ten feet tall, looming over me. One bird has a tuba for a torso, another a clarinet for a mouth. The wind picks up, and I play the body of one of the birds. Its sound is faint, and I suspect it is saving its energy for the big show. Another bird in the distance has a set of wind chimes suspended in its belly. The wind blows through its angelic bones. I hold a small mountain apple up to another one's mouth, and it seems to take a bite. When I look into the bird's eyes, it's as if it's staring right at me, asking me, Why don't you believe? We're all going to heaven. What about you? I look into the marbles fastened onto a long, rusty coil for a neck, and its eyes are steady, staring right into mine. Heaven time. I wish death was called that. But I don't really believe in heaven. And there is this panic that washes over me every time I realize that a huge number of people in the world do believe in heaven, and that they are planning to go there. What about the people that don't believe? They say they're not worried because they know that it doesn't exist. Most of the time, I am one of these people. But then moments arise, especially when in the presence of a 200-foot metal heaven machine, 
that one has to wonder and ask the very important life-altering question, why not believe? What harm would it do to just believe in the silly, amazing idea of heaven? What if I could go there? Wouldn't I want to? Isn't the general idea of returning to heaven really the greatest thing you've ever heard? When I was young, there was a brief period of time when my mother wanted us to become Christians. We started going to church, singing the songs, getting down on our knees, but nothing happened. I felt the same things and had the same ideas as I always did. I used to pray at night and worry that maybe I was a non-believer. I would stand in front of the mirror and I could see that I didn't have that look in my eye, the look of a true believer. In fact, when I was 12, the minister asked me to give a sermon for Youth Sunday, and my sermon was titled, Why I Don't Believe in God. The thing I remember most about that day was how many older members of the church sent me letters or called me on the phone later that night to tell me that they too did not believe, but that they really, really wanted to. I want to go to heaven, and while I don't believe that it exists, I still really, really want to go there. I turn my head down from the bird's gaze. I comb the ground for four-leaf clovers and don't find any. I walk over to the Forever Tron to get close to it. It's actually a giant metal castle, and at the top is the chamber that is going to launch Dr. Evermore to heaven. There's a teardrop-shaped glass orb nestled inside a copper-ribbed egg, and it's in this chamber where Dr. Evermore plans to sit at the moment of his death. How perfect that he's returning in an egg. It's obvious to me that the egg comes before the chicken and that the egg's where it all began. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if heaven is an egg and we all just float inside one beautiful ribbony yellow yolk. The copper-ribbed egg is perched high atop the castle of various instruments, bridges, beams, glass jars with books inside of metal-webbed cones. He's going to wait until when he knows the hours of his life are numbered and then he'll make the ascent all the way to the top of the Forever Tron, where he will sit patiently until the very precise moment when his death arrives. And at that moment, he will be beamed into forever. There is the Gravitron, which is a small room he will stand in to shed weight before takeoff by standing in a pool of water. There are two love guns to aim at anyone that tries to get in his way. A juicer bug supplies more energy to help fuel the trip an Epicurean grill, including a real waffle dog made out of a waffle iron, will serve food to those that stand by. Throughout the property, there are many gazebos, because Dr. Evermore has reserved a seat just for you to watch him leave this earth. The giant field of metal birds, also known as the bird band, will play for him as he leaves, producing in effect his swan song. There is a celestial listening ear, which looks like a giant orange gramophone, that you can listen to as Dr. Evermore speaks his last words as he travels from here into space. I press my ear against it and hear a small whir of silence, and then a spider crawls down onto my face. What will Dr. Evermore say as he leaves Baraboo? Will he invite us along? Will he say, I'm sorry, there's not enough space in heaven for everyone? but enjoy the waffle dogs? I wonder what it'll look like when he disappears. Will he just slump over lifeless in the egg, or will he sparkle and fizz and then be gone? I walk over to the great celestial telescope, which is about 50 feet long, 
where one is supposed to be able to watch his flight into heaven. He says it's there for any doubting Thomases to see the truth. I put my tiny, tiny face up to this giant opening, look inside and see just darkness, the never-ending darkness you see in dreams, or when you close your eyes. I can't see anything. Perhaps it opens up at just the right moment. There are millions of parts that comprise the Forever Tron, and I discover that what I thought were two industrial-sized washing machines affixed to the sides of the Forever Tron are actually two autoclaves from the Apollo spacecraft. They had been donated to a university when Dr. Evermore found them in a junkyard. These two autoclaves were what the astronauts passed the moon rocks through to decontaminate them, and he welded them like cheeks onto the side of the Forever Tron. Think about what has passed through those cheeks. Small rocks chipped away from the moon's surface with hammers and picks, and then placed into plastic bags and brought all the way back to Earth, where they now sit in museum cases, suspended against atmosphere. When people see them, they often complain of how ordinary they seem. Look at the Forever Tron closely and you'll see metal washers, rusty coils, nails, pipes, screws, washing machines. So very ordinary. But imagine... Rocks 4.5 billion years old, being passed by gloved hands through two giant washing machines, where all traces of human contact were erased, so that they could remain in their moon-like state forever. When you're looking up at the moon, you're looking at a very old face. How old doesn't matter, because the number we've decided is so large in the terms of your lifespan, it might as well be infinity. The way you mark your life by seasons, by snow and rain and hurricane, that small story doesn't exist on the moon. In fact, the moon is just rock and rock and rock. Blasts, some large like meteors or comets breaking up the face of the moon, others small like little hammers wielded by astronauts chipping away souvenirs to bring back home. Scientists believe that actually the moon and the earth used to be one body, and that they were split apart by an impact, perhaps something like lightning, and that it left a long scar that filled up with rain, creating the Pacific Ocean, a scar filled up with rain. I wonder if those two bodies, the Earth and the Moon, could reunite the way Tom Every and Dr. Evermore joined bodies, the way they did away with time and just came back for the sole purpose of entering into forever together. What if the moon and earth came together and formed the two bulbous curves of a heart? Could we erase time and live forever? For now, I'll have to stare into the open face of the giant washing machine, imagining moon rocks floating through in wonder. I walk back to the Mini Cooper and find Ragnar and Dr. Evermore still engaged in conversation. Dr. Evermore is handing Ragnar a gift, a round metal washer from the Beloit Company, a large, heavy, circular symbol. Ragnar has been finding and collecting metal washers ever since he was a teenager, and our house has them scattered about. They hold significance for him that he can't explain, and why would he even try? Just one look at a rusty old washer, a circular, cyclical, perfect metaphor for life. Isn't it obvious? And so when Dr. Evermore places the largest washer Ragnar has ever seen in his palm and declares him the king of washers... I know Ragnar has already placed one foot in heaven. But what about me? Am I going to be left behind? I've been hiding with the birds. 
I hold Ragnar's hand before we leave the grounds and think about what I would wish for if forever came right now. If everything we had now could continue forever, I would call back the things I love from the dead. I would revive little Webley, my black bunny who died of dehydration when we left him out in the yard. I would revive my grandmother who died of bone cancer, my goldfish who tore his flesh on a rock in the aquarium, my lovebird whose beak locked together and never came apart, my canary who had a stroke, my cat Al that my mom ran over with her VW van by accident because she had just gotten it and was so high up she couldn't see the ground, my other cat Haukea who used to sit in the washing machine, my grandma Daisy who died even though she didn't want to, my sister's mice who were eaten by our dog Rusty, my dog Rusty who was put to sleep, our pigeon Spaghetti Freddy who died in a trash can, Samantha, the girl from my photography class who drank photochemicals when we weren't looking and died, my sister's friend who split his head open on the pavement when he was only 15, and I'll take one wish now because I know that probably someone I love is going to die before me, and I just don't want that to ever be true. We say our goodbyes and walk back through the trees, out of the magical forest, away from the Forever Tron, waving to the Evermores who are growing smaller and smaller in the distance. They are already disappearing. We get back into our car, parked in front of the hardware store, and drive back out onto the main road. The car is the same. The asphalt on the road is still gray. How do you drive away from a machine that promises forever? a machine that can take you to heaven. How do you leave that and drive back on the common road? How do you step off the ground of believing back into the world where you don't believe? I envision curling up for a long nap in a small moonlight crater, floating through a washing machine, flying with the birds who sing with their bodies. The road stretches out before us. It winds on and on like a dark gray ribbon through space. Perhaps if we keep driving, we'll stretch it out and onwards towards forever. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 